0: Those who want their children to be a part of children's church and preschool praise can dismiss them now. And I invite the rest of you to take out of your bulletin our sermon outline and use it to take some notes, fill in some blanks, as I hope it will be helpful to you maybe later this week or later today to remind yourself of what the Lord has taught you through His Word today. Last week, we introduced to you our prayer initiative For the beginning of 2022, 40 days of prayer called A Call to All Prayer. And I took this from the sermon I preached or the text that I preached from in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 when Paul is calling upon the church to be engaged in spiritual warfare and he says they're to be clothed with the armor of God. And then he closes this section with saying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so what he's communicating is that we can only put on and use the armor of God by praying. We fight, in a sense, on our knees. And so throughout this month, we're going to hear different sermons on different aspects of prayer. And today, I'm going to talk about private prayer. Private prayer from Matthew chapter six verses five through thirteen. Now, this is the section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are the attitudes that believers will have, uh, the convictions, the the person, uh, the personality, the uh, the the responses to life that believers will have living in the kingdom of God. This will be the characteristics of believers who are in the kingdom of God. And after the Beatitudes, then Jesus talks about how this will radically change the way we live in this world. We will be salt and light. We will deal with anger and conflict and lust and marriage and our enemies in a radically different way. But then after this, beginning with chapter 6, he begins to warn believers that they're to be careful because as they begin to live this new life, life living under Christ's kingship, they will be tempted. They will be tempted with pride. They will want others to see their righteousness, and admire them, and praise them. And this can happen so easily that we don't even perceive it as Christians, and so we must always be asking the Lord to examine our motives for what we do, even the good that we do. Prayer is one of those things that God calls us to. It is what God has given his people as a lifeline to him. And last week we learned how essential prayer is to enjoy communion with God, to receive power from God, to put on this armor to fight the spiritual battle, and for having our attitudes and our wills conform to his. We must pray in the Spirit. The Spirit gives us power to pray the way that we ought to pray, according to his will. But like other responses to God's grace, like other good works, we can pray with the wrong motives. We can pray for the wrong reasons. And this is what Jesus focuses upon in this text today, in Matthew 6, 5 through 13. So please follow along as I read God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. That ends the reading of God's word. We're going to see in our text today that Jesus shows us the two ways that we are most likely to err in prayer. And then he gives us a simple template for prayer, which has commonly been known as the Lord's Prayer. Now, there are two sections in this text. The first, Jesus is teaching us how not to pray in verses 5 through 8. And so he's saying, in essence, do not pray like hypocrites and Gentiles. The hypocrites pray to be seen But you are to pray to God who is in secret. That is our first point. Pray to God who is in secret. Jesus says in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. That may seem shocking to us. Because what Jesus is saying here is believers can pray hypocritically. Hypocrisy can be something that we're blinded to in our own life. And so he tells us how we're to recognize hypocrisy. More than likely, Jesus is referring to Pharisees here, the legalistic, religious leaders of the day among the Jews. The Jews had several times during the day when they would pray, morning, afternoon, and evening sacrifices, including prayers, were offered twice a day in the temple. And what happened in prayer in the temple also happened in the synagogue. When the trumpet blew in the temple, there were sacrifices made. And this was time for God's people to pray. And the Pharisees would often stop right where they were and begin praying out loud. And sometimes it would be in the temple or in a synagogue. And other times it would be wherever they were, out and about And Jesus says, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So these people would intentionally place themselves where people would see them praying and hear them praying so that they could be admired by everyone for their piety. Jesus says, truly I say to you, They have received their reward. In other words, their only reward is the recognition of these undiscerning people and their praise. They won't receive the reward of having a relationship with God, knowing His pleasure, knowing His presence because they're not believers. The Pharisees that he's referring to here were not believers. But you see, Even though this is certainly not true for born-again Christians, we know the Lord by God's grace. We know his presence. But even as believers, we can get trapped into this hypocrisy of seeking recognition for our pious behavior, such as public praying. Now, why are these Pharisees seeking recognition from others. Well, it's because they don't really have the peace of God. They don't really have an identity in Christ. They need the applause of men. But as believers, we don't need the applause of men. We have the attention of God. We have the love of God. We have the grace of God. Now, what is the remedy for resisting this kind of hypocrisy in Prayer. Please know that Jesus is not saying here that all public prayer is wrong. Jesus prayed publicly, the apostles prayed publicly, the early church prayed publicly, and we find public prayers in the Old Testament as well. But what Jesus is teaching here is that to be able to pray rightly, publicly, we must be able to have the right posture toward God in prayer privately in secret and so he says in verse 6 but when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret the idea here is that we don't have to have a a private prayer room back in those days a lot of the homes were just one room homes now what he's emphasizing here is to cultivate a private prayer life with God in secret first Spend time with the Lord knowing that he knows your heart. You see, the fountainhead of all praying is private, secret prayer. And it's in our private, secret prayer that we seek fellowship with God. We adore him. We confess our sins. We dwell on his pardoning grace. And we lift up our petitions to him. You see, the essence of prayer is conversation with a God of the universe, a God who is holy, a God who is our Father, a God who is gracious. And they're to pray to their Father. Isn't it interesting here that Jesus chooses to use this title for God here? And I think what he's saying here is that we're to relate to God as our Father. What does a Father do for his children? He's tender, he's merciful, he's understanding, he wants his children to come to him. He loves God his children unconditionally. And that's why we don't need the attention or the applause of others because we know our Father loves us purely, perfectly. Now notice Jesus says at the end of verse 6, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward that he's talking about in secret prayer? Well, possibly he's referring to answered prayer if we pray according to the Lord's will. But I think of it even more so, he's talking about the reward of God himself. Communion with God. Enjoying his presence. Your heart being filled with his love, with his joy, with his peace, with contentment. A heart filled with courage and love and hope. Well, secondly, Jesus says, Christians can fall into thinking the thinking of the Gentiles. He says, the Gentiles pray to try and manipulate God, but you are, point number two, to pray to God who loves you and knows your needs already. Verse seven says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so Jesus moves now from the Pharisees to the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not believe in the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament. They made up, made up their own gods, their own idols, and they had a superstitious view of prayer. They believed that prayer was to get the God's attention, and prayer was to leverage God, to manipulate God, to do things for them. Think of one example in 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 25 through 29 describes the prophets of Baal and how they prayed all day long with shouts and they cut themselves letting blood out and they hoped to rouse their God and gain his attention. But Jesus says this is not what prayer is. See the pagans did not understand who God truly was. They didn't have a relationship with the true God of the universe. Many of the prayers of the Bible are brief and pithy, but on the other hand, Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't pray long prayers. He's not condemning long prayers. He himself prayed all night long on several occasions. And there, were, there are many long prayers in the Bible. The point is that the length and rep, repetition of prayer does not determine its effectiveness. Jesus teaches not to be like the Gentiles as they pray this way. Instead, he says in verse 8, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, using lots of words or repetition in our prayers, thinking that we're going to get God's attention, thinking that we're going to manipulate him into answering our prayers, that is contrary to the nature of prayer, what prayer is to be. Again, Jesus refers to God as our Father. Your Father knows what you need. Already, Your father is welcome you in, welcoming us into prayer. Your father loves you already. You don't have to coerce him. You don't have to get his attention. He, he's all, his eyes are always on his children. So Jesus is condemning this mindless repetition. A spirit of distrust. A spirit of of Fear of being afraid of God. Again, what prevents us from thinking that we have to use many words or repetition in our prayers to get God's attention, to manipulate him? Well, why does God not need to be placated? It's because he's already been satisfied through the work of Christ on our behalf. See, We know God as our Father because it has been secured for us by Christ's work in the gospel. You see, the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are God's children. He's the spirit of adoption. You see, God hasn't always been our Father. We know that we're born into this world with a sinful nature. Mankind is separated from God. Mankind is alienated from God because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. We've inherited this from the first man, Adam. God is a holy God. He demands absolute perfection according to His commandments and we fall short. He cannot accept us because we aren't totally righteous. But in addition to that, God is a judge, a perfect judge. He must condemn and judge all sin. And so we are condemned in his eyes apart from God's grace. We cannot pay back the debt that we owe of our sin. But God in his love and his compassion, his mercy, he determined to reconcile us to himself. He determined to save us By the sending of His Son, He sent His own Son, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, to become a man, to take on human flesh and a human nature without sin, and yet to remain God in order to reconcile us to God, so that God would be our Father. Jesus came to fulfill the commandments for us, to live perfectly according to God's commandments, so that those who he came to live and to die for would receive his record of righteousness. He also came to go to the cross. This sinless man was condemned in our place. He received the judgment that was due us. Our sins, the debt of our sins, were transferred to him when he was on the cross and he suffered and bled and he died in our place receiving God's wrath and judgment Right before he died, he said, it is finished, meaning our debts have been paid in full through his atoning sacrifice. And on the third day, he rose from the dead victoriously over death, over the devil, over sin, certifying that he, in fact, is God, God the Son and the Messiah, and that his sacrifice, his work was accepted by God the Father on our behalf. And so the good news is that all of us who are given a new nature, who are born again, and who turn from a life living for sin and rely on Christ alone for salvation, they are declared holy before God, righteous before Him. They are given the merit of Christ. They're clothed with His righteousness. And they're also forgiven of every sin they ever commit, past, present, future, And they're adopted into God's family. This is how we become God's children. This is how we can call God our Father. And we're given the gift of eternal life. You see, it's our assurance of these truths and our identity in Christ that reminds us we don't have to persuade God of anything. We don't have to coerce Him to do good to us. That's already His disposition He is favorably disposed to us because he loves us as he loves his own son. He already has our attention. He cares for our needs more than we care for our needs. And he will provide for us better than we could ever ask for. Well, in the second half of our text, Jesus transitions from how not to pray and how to pray in secret and with this confidence of God the Father's love, to now teaching what the content of our prayers ought to be. What ought to be the pattern of our prayer life? Well, this prayer contains two major parts. Six petitions. Three in the first part, three in the second part. So Jesus begins by saying in verse 9 here, Pray then like this. In the first half, Jesus says, pray to your Father that he might be glorified and for his kingdom to come and will to be done. He begins in verse 9 by saying, our Father in heaven. This This is the disposition of prayer, to recognize that we're coming into the Father's presence. We're addressing God. He's our Father and he's Not only our Father, but He's in heaven. In other words, He's transcendent. He dwells on high. He's near us as our Father, but He's also beyond us in that He is infinitely great and powerful and sovereign. But you see, nothing shapes our prayers more than this intimate title of Father. Father. And again, it's connected to the gospel because we can only know God as our Father through the saving work of Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now the first petition here is that God's name would be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. What does hallow mean? It means set apart. It means holy. It means sanctify. When we're praying this, we're asking and wanting God's name to be revered, revered in our own lives, but also revered in other people as well. This will be the yearning desire of all Christians. I was reminded of this the other day in a small way. Cindy and I can't resist a beautiful sunset, and when we see one outside of our great room window, We'll often go outside and get a better view. And one time, a couple weeks ago, Cindy went all the way up to the top of our driveway to take some pictures of this sunset. And the neighbors were right next to us taking down their Christmas decorations. And she says, the heavens declare the glory of God out loud. And then she said it again. And the neighbor turned around and Cindy pointed up to the sunset And she turned around and said, oh, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, you see, this is what we want. We want other people to glorify God for who he is. We want people to see the glory of God, the holiness of God. We want others to share in this experience we have of God's glory. This is what Psalm 34.3 says, O oh, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt His name together. The second petition, verse 10, Your kingdom come. And this relates to God's name being hallowed, because for His name to be hallowed, what must happen? His rule must be acknowledged. It means Christ is king and we want his kingly reign to reign in our hearts and reign in the hearts of others. So this is really a prayer for evangelism, a prayer for discipleship, a prayer for missions. We want people all over the world to recognize Christ as king and to come into his kingdom and that only occurs when we proclaim the gospel because the gospel is the only way That people can be saved and enter into the kingdom of God. This is a prayer for the church to grow. This is a prayer for discipleship. And ultimately, it is a prayer for Jesus to return because we know when he returns, he will establish his permanent visible rule on earth. Well, the third petition is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that Not only we know God's will, but that his will would be done in our lives and in other people's lives too and in the world. How do we know God's will? We know God's will from his word, from his commandments, from his laws. And God's secret will is his will that is done in our lives through circumstances and through history. We're to pray for God's will to be done. Of course, the greatest example is what we sang about earlier Jesus was a man who did God's will perfectly and we see this supremely in the garden of Gethsemane right before he was to be arrested and tried and then hung on a cross and he said to his father not as I will but as you will and in heaven God's will is done perfectly and we want that to occur here on this earth someday as well. Now at this point, Jesus changes his focus from petitions for God's glory to primarily petitions for ourselves. And here we see Jesus telling us point number four, pray for your daily provisions for forgiveness and deliverance from sin. If a believer is to take active part in the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, such activity requires the last three petitions. And so the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. Now bread, back in those days, was something absolutely necessary for life, for sustenance. Today, some people stay away from bread. Too many carbs. And it's only a side item or a snack. But what Jesus is saying here is this represents our basic daily needs of food and drink, of clothing and shelter. And this is not an invitation for selfish prayers or praying for great wealth or luxury. No, this teaches us moderation Humility and contentment with what God provides. It also teaches us to be dependent upon God daily for everything. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched the old movie Shenandoah. Jimmy Stewart is one of the main characters, and he's eating a meal with his children shortly after his wife dies. And she was the spiritual leader in the family, she handled all the prayers before the meals. But now the children want him lead in prayer and he's not a believer and his words reflect it he prays roughly like this dear lord thank you for this meal we plowed the ground we planted the seed we pulled the weeds we harvested the wheat we ground the flour we baked the bread but thank you for this meal i think sometimes our prayers betray that kind of attitude or at least we think we're so self-sufficient you know, we earn a paycheck, we've gone to school, we've learned to trade. Uh, we make it ourselves. And, and the whole supply chain and everything, you know, it, it's, it's there, it's, it's, it's not going to uh, be disrupted. Well, we've learned a lot about that recently, haven't we? That it's not so secure. But You see, in our wealth and our affluence, we, we don't think to remember that everything that we have is dependent upon God. He sustains everything. So in this fourth petition, we're asking God for our chief physical needs. But in the fifth petition, we're asking him for our chief spiritual need. And what is that? Forgiveness. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, we don't need to have Jesus re-crucified Every day for our sins, to atone for our sins. They've been atoned for once and for all through His suffering and death on the cross. So Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to provide forgiveness for all of our sins. So why do we need to keep asking for forgiveness every day? Well, God wants us to experience the refreshment of that forgiveness. God wants to, if you will, help us to experience our guilt being taken away every day because of the finished work of Christ. He wants us to recognize our sin so that we will steer clear of sin in the future. But some people interpret this passage that unless we forgive our debtors, God won't forgive us. As if our forgiveness is like a work that earns God's forgiveness. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' point is that God forgives the penitent. And those who are truly repentant and recognize the forgiveness that they've been given, they are forgiving people. They forgive because God forgave them. Forgiveness is a canceling or payment of debt. Jesus did that for us and a debt that we can't imagine how big this was and how much God has forgiven us. And so we have a heart like Christ now, a new nature, and we want to forgive others because God has forgiven us. John Stott says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves we have minimized our own. And so, we want to absorb the debt that people have against us or with us because they've sinned against us, because our sins have been canceled out and paid for by Christ. It's also very beneficial to us when we forgive people. I like the quote, that I saw from Corey Ten Boom. She says forgiveness is setting the prisoner free. Only to find out that the prisoner was me. The final petition is verse 13. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. So this previous petition is release from guilt. Experiencing that release from guilt. As we ask for forgiveness. And then this one seeks to release from sin's power. And corruption in other words what Jesus is saying here is that we will ask God not please don't permit me weak as I am and prone to sin to enter into situations that would expose me to temptation and would cause me to fall deliver me from that deliver me from sinning and the power of the evil one I'm reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we ask God, we ask God to spare us from temptations that would defeat us. We're asking God not to permit us to voluntarily run to a temptation. In fact, God wants us to flee temptation. You know, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way we'd want him to because if an answered prayer would lead us into temptation, he would not grant it. And you'll notice there's no ending here like we usually give to the Lord's Prayer. There's no benediction here, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Why? Because that's not found in the early manuscripts. And so we shouldn't consider it part of Scripture However, it's a worthy benediction, a worthy prayer after the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing scripturally wrong with it. So Jesus gives us this comprehensive guide as to how to pray. We ought to incorporate these elements in our own prayer life. Now, it's not wrong to recite this prayer as long as it doesn't become rote to you, as long as you say it without meaning it in your heart. So, what does God want us to apply from this passage in our prayer life? Let me give you four application points very quickly. First, I ask you, are you cultivating a private prayer life? Are you planning each day a time of concentrated prayer, in secret, conversing with God, offering up your petitions, praying for his glory, etc. But also, does your day include spontaneous prayer? When, when you're in trouble, when you're worried, when you see a sunset or a sunrise, when something causes you to be joyful, are you praying? Are you praying appropriately in those situations? Are you in an ongoing secret dialogue with God throughout the day. Secondly, to have the secret reward of private prayer, you must be a born-again believer. Jesus is teaching us here. You must be able to call God your Father. How do you know if God is truly your Father? You must have been born again. You must have repented in Jesus and trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior. You see, if that has occurred in your life, then you want to apply this teaching of Jesus to your prayer life. And then we can often resort to praying like the Gentiles, thinking that we need to do the work of prayer to get God to give us his attention or to get God to do something for us. Well, if that's your attitude, you need to repent And instead, point number three, ask God to give you the confidence in prayer of his gracious love and his desire to be good to you. Do you have the confidence of God's loving concern and goodness towards you as your heavenly father? He's concerned about every little and big thing in your life. He wants you to come to him. Again, sometimes the Lord does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. But he will give you exactly what you need. He will be generous with you. He will be good to you. So do you know the joy of praying to your heavenly Father with that kind of confidence? And then finally, are you seeking to apply in your prayers the elements of, of Jesus' model prayer. Does this mean that every prayer of yours has to have all of these elements of the Lord's Prayer? I don't believe so. I think we see prayers in the Bible that don't necessarily have all of these elements. But I do believe we ought to examine our prayer life and see if any of these elements are missing, lacking, and perhaps You should make it a goal that at least once a day you incorporate all of these elements into your prayer. You know, I look at my own prayer life, and if you're like me, a lot of my prayer life is our petitions, and not so much praying for God's name to be hallowed, or his kingdom to come, or his will to be done. Not so much, Lord, keep me from temptation. Keep me from evil. A lot about petitions. A lot about my daily bread and a lot more. Well, I'm caused to reevaluate here. I need to include more of these other petitions in my prayers. And and I I think I ought to be challenging all of us as well to make sure we put the first petitions first in many of our prayers. Seeking God's glory, his will to be done, etc., his kingdom to come because when we do that our own desires and petitions fall more in line with his so may we in our 40-day prayer initiative ask God to help us to concentrate on how we should improve our private prayer and as we do God will certainly answer that prayer and He, he will give us the reward of closer communion with him Pray with me, please. Oh Lord, we thank you for your teaching on prayer. Help us to recognize when we're getting our eyes off of you and trying to get the praise of men instead of learning how to converse with you secretly and finding our identity in you and our needs met in you so that we don't have to draw attention to ourselves to get the applause of people. Help us not to Pray like the pagans who feel like we have to get, our, get your attention or persuade you with words to get you to do what we want. Lord, we know that you want our best. That you're always listening to us. You beckon us to come. Help us to come to you and know that you do only what is good for us. And Lord, help us to follow this model of prayer in our own prayer life especially putting uh, the petitions for your glory and your kingdom to come and your will to be done before our own petitions. We thank you, Lord, that you have thought of everything in your word. You give us what we need to have a rich prayer life. So do that here in Carriage Lane and and with all of us personally. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our closing hymn, Jesus Shall Reign. of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, and all God's people said, Amen.